This podcast contains true stories involving extreme violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to This Desire for Peace, a podcast examining the competing visions of peace in Oregon's snake war. I'm Matthew Vogel. Thank you for listening. In the previous episode, we looked at the beginning of the relations between the Northern Paiutes and the Whites. In this episode, we will look at how those deteriorating relationships led to all-out war. We'll also talk about United States Indian policy and how agents of the Indian Bureau attempted to use the faulty policy to bring peace with the natives. In mid-September of 1860, a wagon train passed through the dry, undulating landscape near the Snake River in Washington Territory. Days before, the immigrants, bound for Oregon, elected to not cross the river at Three Island Crossing, instead following the original path of the Oregon Trail south of the river. At Castle Creek, near the present-day community of Oriana, Idaho, they discovered a partially buried corpse, a man's hands protruding from a hastily dug grave. As the immigrants moved on, natives struck them, killing some before leaving. The episode became known as the Utter Massacre. The immigrants split up, some choosing to remain near the Owyhee River until help arrived, while others, under a man named Van Ornum, kept pushing on into Oregon. Over the next days and weeks, the immigrants with Van Ornum were killed and their children taken captive. When an army patrol found the remaining survivors of the party waiting near the Owyhee River on October 28th, the sight was horrifying. A newspaper out of Walla Walla reported that the survivors fell on their knees, weeping as they pleaded for food from the rescuers. To the horror of the soldiers, the survivors had survived only by eating the flesh of their dead children and spouses. They were naked, and their bones showed through their emaciated skin. According to the report, the soldiers were filled with both pity for the survivors and a heated desire for revenge against the natives who perpetrated the massacre. Not much is known about the deaths of the Van Ornum group. All the soldiers found were their corpses rotting in the hills, some still punctured with arrows. Naturally, the blame for the Van Ornum deaths fell on the natives. However, native memory paints the event in a different light. Our Paiute people were always getting blamed for what the whites were doing. They they mentioned how the white miners had uh, killed some white people up by Ontario, Oregon. And they said they even used to dress up like Indians. And they killed all those white people because they wanted their flour and their water and their provisions. And, they, and it, was, it was white men that did that. They dressed up as Indians. And then we got blamed. And the soldiers came after us. And it was white guys, miners from that area, gold miners. And they killed their own people because they couldn't get their provisions fast enough. So they killed their own people to steal their flour and sugar and, and provisions. And then they shot the wagons and they shot the people with arrows that they 
they had from raiding the Indians. Regardless of the identity of the perpetrators, whites blamed the natives. The gruesome events didn't generate the same hate-filled response from the public in Oregon as did the Ward Massacre six years earlier, but it occurred about the same time that Paiutes carried out raids against a new Indian reservation in central Oregon. These episodes led to an increase in military presence in the area, bringing the region one step closer to all-out war. Meanwhile, federal authorities pursued a peace that benefited only the Euro-American population. The federal government's murky Indian policy took shape in the form of the reservation system. In 1858, Charles E. Mix, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs for the United States, gave a clear definition of what the nation's Indian policy actually was, so far as he understood it. The policy consisted of three parts. The first was to relocate the tribes to reservations. Secondly, divide up the reservation land and allot each family their own portion to farm. And third, give the natives agricultural equipment, livestock, tools, and Euro-American schooling. The policy was geared towards assimilation. By separating the natives from the whites through the reservation system, natives could adapt on their own and at their own pace without interference from white settlers. It was a policy that made sense to many government agents involved in Native American relations. It seemed to guarantee a permanent peace. However, the reservation had a darker, more complex side. Mix expressed doubts regarding the long-term sustainability of the reservation system in Oregon, Washington, and California. His annual report included a stark reasoning that the relocation of natives out of their traditional homeland often led to war. He said, It cannot be expected that Indians situated like those in Oregon and Washington occupying extensive sections of country will quietly and peaceably submit without any equivalent to be deprived of their homes and possessions and to be driven off to some other locality where they cannot find their usual means of subsistence. Mix went further and condemned the reservation system saying, such a proceeding is repugnant alike to the dictates of humanity and the principles of natural justice. But while Mix believed that the natives reservations should be established on good land, he knew that there was a looming problem. The favorable lands were disappearing under the wave of unrestrained white settlement. He wrote, We have no longer distant and extensive sections of country which we can assign them. The Commissioner of Indian Affairs, the man at the head of the entire Indian system for the United States, knew that the system did not work. Yet for decades to come, the federal government continued to implement its reservation policy. One major reason for the continuance of the reservation system is contained in the same report by Mix. Despite his opinions regarding the sustainability of reservation policy, Mix wrote of a conspicuous benefit derived from the faulty system. He noted that even though the policy was expensive, in the end, the government earned a profit. He wrote, The policy, it is true, has been a costly one, but we have been amply repaid its expense by the revenue obtained from the sale of lands acquired from the Indians, and by the rapid extension of our settlements and the corresponding increase in the resources and prosperity of our country. What Mix meant is that by seizing Native American lands through questionable treaties, the government was in a position to reap significant financial benefits. The fact that its reservation policy was lucrative may have been incentive enough to perpetuate any other backward components in an already broken Indian policy. 
If peace was to be bought through the reservation system, it was the natives who had to pay for it. Six years after Mix penned his observations of Indian policy in action, the government, using that very system, orchestrated a massive cession of land in eastern Oregon through a crooked treaty in 1864. More on that in a moment. Now, Oregon's Indian policy began to take shape in 1850 while it was still a territory. Congress authorized the President of the United States to appoint commissioners to treat with the tribes west of the Cascades. Territorial Governor Joseph Lane, who also happened to be the Indian Commissioner in Oregon, a typical arrangement of the era, called for the relocation of all natives into the desert east of the Cascade Mountains. Anson Dart, the second Indian Commissioner in Oregon, disagreed with Lane and instead created reservations near the coast and away from the whites. Oregonians had no intentions to live alongside Indians. In 1855, the federal government created the Warm Springs Reservation for the Tenino and Wasco tribes, the traditional enemies of the Paiutes. The reservation stood on traditional Paiute territory. When the reservation was created, the newly stationary Warm Springs natives were still in conflict with the Paiutes, and they were an easy target. Paiutes often raided the reservation for livestock. The agent of the agency, A.P. Dennison, called for military assistance, but in response, received only 40 rifles and ammunition. Dennison armed a group of Warm Springs natives under the reservation physician, Thomas Fitch. According to historian Hubert Howe Bancroft, the party recaptured some of the stolen livestock, killed several Paiute men, and took women and children as prisoners. The situation deteriorated further as the Paiutes retaliated and attacked the reservation, killing about a dozen Warm Springs natives and stealing or destroying as much as $16,000 in material, an amount equal to over half a million dollars today. In late July 1860, in the aftermath of the Utter and Van Orna massacres, Colonel George Wright, commander of the Military Department of Oregon, ordered a punitive expedition against the Paiutes, and the troops found a band on Steens Mountain in southeastern Oregon, capturing only a handful before calling off the search. Paiutes struck the reservation again that September, driving off almost all the remaining stock. But developments back on the east side of the United States undercut further military action at the time. Two months after the last raid on the Warm Springs Reservation, South Carolina seceded from the Union, the first of 11 states to do so. As war appeared inevitable, Many troops stationed in the west returned to their homes in the east in preparation for the fight. But even with the exodus of the regular army troops, bitter conflict with the Paiutes continued unabated. Settlers continued pouring into Oregon during the Civil War, encouraged by congressional acts designed to accelerate immigration into the unsettled regions of the United States. Homesteaders rushed westward alongside those who hoped to secure wealth in the mining regions. Mining communities in Oregon's Blue Mountains and the Owyhee region of modern-day Idaho seemed to fill overnight with prospectors and merchants capitalizing on the boom. As the white population exploded, resources for the Paiutes dwindled, which led to increased raids against the reservation and against the white newcomers. Whites deplored the raids and called for revenge, portraying the Paiutes as bloodthirsty and savage. The Paiutes viewed the situation quite differently. Wilson Wewa explains. And so with the military and the 
um, agency personnel, uh, when the Paiutes retaliated for them encroaching on our land, that caused more conflict. And so the soldiers were called to hunt down uh, my people. And <clears throat> that caused for battles, numerous battles within Central Oregon and Southeast Oregon and, and across Paiute territory. The way I look at it, and I always say that's why I get disgusted in reading white history, they always paint um, the Native Americans as savages and renegades and um, murderers. But from listening to the stories and then being schooled in a white school about early American history, the chiefs of the Northern Paiute were only doing the same thing with Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Washington and George Washington were doing. And they weren't murderers. They were called patriots. And that's what my people were. We were protecting our land, our resources, our women and children and elders. The white population in Eastern Oregon continued to swell, and with it, incidents of theft and violence. To protect the whites surging into the gold fields of Idaho and Oregon, army patrols roamed the immigrant trails almost constantly since the Utter and Van Ornum massacres in 1860. In order to facilitate the patrols, General Alvord, commander of the Department of Oregon, ordered the construction of Fort Boise in 1863. Because of its location, the Fort Boise garrison not only had access to the immigrant routes, but also easy access into southeastern Oregon if needed. Alvord wrote to his superiors in October 1863 and stated that it was necessary for a military operation into eastern Oregon against the Paiutes to further protect the miners. Calling the miners hardy and adventurous, he said, it will be our duty to give them all possible protection in the undertaking. Peace meant the unrestrained white conquest of native territory and the army was willing to crush any Paiute attempt to defend their homeland. For whites, it seems, the thought that they were trespassing on native ground did not seem to matter or even occur to them. This idea is what some historians call settler colonialism, where a region inhabited by an indigenous group is displaced by a stronger colonist society. Often, the colonizing groups view themselves as destined or ordained to control the land, which leads to the marginalization of the indigenous groups. The indigenous people are often portrayed as unwanted or uncivilized outsiders, and resistance to the colonists is crushed. Given this outlook, any amount of resistance the Paiutes put up was construed as savagery or hostility, and it brought retaliation. Violence to resist cultural annihilation brought on greater violence from whites in retaliation. The Snake War began as predicted by General Alvord in February 1864, as members of the 1st Oregon Cavalry moved into the mountains around the John Day and Canyon City Mines in north-central Oregon and down towards Steen Mountain in southeastern Oregon. However, the Paiutes proved to be both strong and elusive, and the raids against the Whites continued. Troops scouted for thousands of miles and found only a few Paiutes. The first real fight of the war occurred that May, 
when a detachment of troops from the command of Captain John M. Drake, together with friendly Cayuse and Warm Springs scouts, attacked a fortified Paiute position near Crooked River. After locating the Paiutes, the soldiers and scouts rushed to their position over rocky terrain, losing three soldiers and one Warm Springs warrior killed, and another eight soldiers wounded. The charge stalled, and the troops fell back, leaving behind their dead. When Drake arrived with the rest of the force, the Paiutes were gone. The soldiers destroyed the abandoned camp and found the remains of the dead who had been left behind. The soldiers had been mutilated, and the Warm Springs warrior had been scalped and his intestines cut out. This fight was typical of the battles during the war. It was a small fight with few casualties. However, the sheer frequency of the fights drove the casualty count higher and higher as the years passed. The head Paiute chief in Oregon was Weawiwa. Weawiwa, together with his brother Paulina, who was the war chief, guided their bands through the eastern portion of the state. In 1859, the two had been captured on a raid against the Warm Springs Agency and put in shackles, though they escaped soon after. The shackles had scarred their wrists and probably served as a constant reminder of the wrongs committed against them and their people. The brothers and the other chiefs, Ochiko, Howluck, and others, continued raiding out of necessity, and the anger of the whites boiled. About the same time the war began in north-central Oregon, consequential events unfolded to the south with one band of Paiutes, as well as two other tribes, signing a treaty with the government. In 1863, Major Charles S. Drew, a commander of volunteers in the region, wrote a description of some of the tribes in southern Oregon. Besides citing numerous incidents of violence, he stated, the Klamath Lake, Modoc, and Paiute Indians so far as it relates to their general character, are virtually one tribe, and none of them are in the least reliable for good whatever. Clearly, Drew did not think highly of them, and he was ignorant of the tribes in the region. He wrote that the three tribes were basically all the same tribe. Had Drew really understood the nature of intertribal relations, he would have known about the conflicts between the Klamaths and Paiutes. In his report, he continued to blame the natives for the commission of violent acts, they are a horde of practical thieves, highwaymen, murderers, cowardly sycophants before the white man's face, and, a perfidious, and perfidious assassins behind his back. Drew neglected to mention that the source of the violence there was the same as in the North, white encroachment on tribal land. Abraham Lincoln's new superintendent of Indian Affairs in Oregon, J.W. Parent Huntington, likewise demonstrated a shortcoming in knowledge concerning the Northern Paiute when he, too, identified the Klamath and Modoc tribes as one with the Paiutes under the title Snakes. The name Paiute made few appearances at all. Huntington later distinguished between the Paiutes and the Klamaths and Modocs to note the violence between the Whites and the Paiutes. Huntington, a native of Connecticut, was born in 1831 and emigrated to Oregon in 1849. He rose in prominence through his marriage to Mary Applegate, the daughter of the famous pioneer Jesse Applegate in 1857. Three years later, at the age of 29, he was elected to the state legislature. He continued to distinguish himself and eventually received the appointment of superintendent of Indian affairs in Oregon. 
Huntington negotiated the treaty in 1864 with the Klamath and Modoc tribes near Fort Klamath in southern Oregon. Also taking part was a single band of Paiutes, the Goyatikas, or Yahuskins, as they are still known. The Klamath and Modoc signed over the Klamath Basin, an area in southern Oregon and northern California, ranging from the Cascades to the Goose Lake country, in return for a sizable reservation on Klamath land, north and east of the Klamath Lakes. The Goyaticas, who typically lived near Silver, Summer, and Abert Lakes, signed over their homeland as well. However, probably through the machinations of Huntington and others with him, the Goyaticas also signed away most of the upper Great Basin, extending as far as the area of Harney Lake. In return for nearly 20,000 square miles of land, roughly one-fifth of the state of Oregon, the signatory tribes received less than 200 square miles of their own. Thus, with the mark of just a few Klamath, Modoc, and Yahuskin leaders, at least seven northern Paiute bands no longer had any legal claim to much of their homeland. Still, Huntington believed that the treaty alone would not halt the ongoing bloodshed. More treaties would be necessary once the hostile bands had been subdued. Huntington began his long journey back to Salem, and with him rode an Indian agent by the name of Logan and an escort of Warm Springs warriors. Huntington rode with Logan at the head of the column as they passed slowly northward. Suddenly, the two riders stumbled upon two Paiutes concealed in the brush. The Warm Springs contingent captured them and coaxed the Paiutes to reveal that there was an encampment nearby. Scouts soon discovered the camp, and Huntington's party entered to find three old men, three women, and two children. Soon after Huntington and the Warm Springs men entered the camp, they seized two more Paiute men returning from a hunt. They informed the Paiutes that they had just come from signing the treaty with the Klamaths, Modocs, and Yahuskins, and that the Whites gave the signers trinkets and treated with them as friends, implying that all would be well if the Paiutes only signed the treaty as well. The situation must have been terrifying for the captives, but Huntington was proud that he had finally had the opportunity to communicate in person with some of the hostile snakes. I was congratulating myself when the five men suddenly made an attempt to seize our guns, which were standing around some trees in camp. We were compelled to commence firing upon them at once, and three of them were killed, the other two escaping, badly wounded. One of these, I have since learned, died that night, while the other escaped to Paulina's camp and recovered. Huntington discovered that one of the captive women was the wife of Paulina. Learning this, the party decided to bring the women and children along as prisoners. Placed in the charge of soldiers at Fort Vancouver, the captives were to be held as hostages until Paulina abandoned the warpath, submitted to white authority, and signed a treaty with Huntington. I rely much upon them in bringing Paulina to terms, Huntington stated in his annual report. Paulina received a message from the Klamath chief La Lake that Huntington wanted to meet, and it seemed to him that Huntington was sincere. However, about the same time he got word from La Lake, the survivor from the incident with Huntington and the Warm Springs warriors arrived in camp, telling Paulina about the capture of his wife. Paulina sent a messenger to speak with La Lake on the reservation with some words for Huntington. La Lake then passed the message to Captain William Kelly at Fort Klamath, who in turn reported it to Huntington in Salem. Paulina's communication detailed the capture of his wife as reported by the survivor 
and the story contrasted greatly with the version outlined by Huntington in his report. Kelly shared Paulina's account, writing that a group of Warm Springs natives and two white men, evidently the survivor did not know the white men were Logan and Huntington himself, captured one man who, bound by the Warm Springs warriors, led them to the camp. The intruders then seized two old men, as well as the women and children of the camp, and tied up the old men. Two more Paiutes entered the camp and were quickly apprehended. However, when the Warm Springs men attempted to take the weapons from the Paiutes, the two fled. The Warm Springs warriors gave chase, attempting to shoot them down. They shot one dead, but the other escaped. The letter stated, The Warm Springs Indians then hung two of the Indian men they had tied and clubbed the other to death. The incident worried Paulina, who wondered if he and his people would face the same fate should they come into the reservation. The incident jeopardized Huntington's plan, though it seems the ploy eventually succeeded. Paulina surrendered himself at the Klamath Reservation that November. Had Paulina known that Huntington was present at the capture of the camp and the murder of the Paiutes, it seems unlikely that he would have attempted to treat with him. For Huntington's sake, it was a blessing that the survivor did not know who he was. That Huntington's official report differed so significantly from the version of events, as related in Kelly's letter, may be evidence that Huntington knew that if the facts of the event were revealed, in which he played a role in the murder of innocent Paiutes, his position as the superintendent of Indian Affairs might be endangered. Thus, instead of telling the true version of what happened, he ensured that the murders would be perceived as a justifiable act done for the sake of self-preservation. Huntington proved willing to use murder and kidnapping to achieve peace in the form of treaties. General Benjamin Alvord, the commander of the District of Oregon, did not credit Huntington for the submission of Paulina. Instead, he believed it was due to the constant harassment of the soldiers in the region. Writing to his superior in San Francisco, he wrote, The submission of Paulina, head war chief of the Snake Indians at Fort Klamath in November last, is an auspicious event if he is sincere. It was but the natural result of the activity of the troops last summer, and if it proves to be real, I shall consider it a source of gratitude to the military and to the whole frontier. Albert's optimism was guarded, however. He did not trust Paulina to keep his word, stating that the chief's reliability remains to be tested. As far as Alvord was concerned, peace depended on Paulina's ability to stay true to his word and his ability to restrain the rest of his band. Huntington likewise believed that peace depended on the cooperation of Paulina's bands. He asked that the Warm Springs natives refrain from attacking the Paiutes until he could conclude a treaty with Paulina. He additionally requested that the army wage no campaigns through that winter. However, he knew that if the Paiutes raided the Whites or the Warm Springs Reservation, there would have to be consequences, and if they ventured near White settlements and the reservation, violence might occur. He wrote, I am glad to know that Paulina desires to submit to the government and cease war, but he cannot expect that the Indians and Whites, whom he has been robbing and trying to kill for many years, will refrain from shooting him if he goes where they are. If Huntington was to make a successful treaty, Paulina's bands had to be alive and present. The weather prohibited an early meeting to discuss terms, but Paulina was patient as he waited. 
Captain Kelly supplied them with rations out of Fort Klamath until the spring of 1865. It was not until August that Huntington arrived to conclude the treaty. The terms stipulated that the Paiutes release any captives in their possession, that they were to cede their territory in north-central Oregon and relocate permanently to the Klamath Reservation, and that all depredations must cease. Additionally, the Wapapis were required to urge other bands to surrender. In return for Paiute lands and their adherence to the terms, the government promised to pay $22,000 over 15 years, equal to about $360,000 today. Pending the approval of the United States Senate, the proceedings ended on August 12th as Paulina and 10 other headmen of the Paiutes affixed their marks to the treaty. Lindsay Applegate, the sub-agent overseeing the Klamath Reservation, wrote in his annual report that Paulina did offer to help persuade Howlick another Paiute chief, to bring his band into the reservation. And if the army made any forays into the country east of the reservation, Paulina was willing to aid them in doing so. When Huntington once again set out for Salem, surely he was pleased with the outcome. However, the ominous fact remained that only a few of Paulina's people joined him on the reservation. Paulina appeared content on the reservation, and as far as Applegate could see, there was nothing of note to indicate any danger. Applegate did have one major problem on his hands, and it was not the fault of any of the natives. Though Huntington completed the treaty with the Klamaths, Modocs, and Yahuskin Paiute Band in 1864, the Senate had yet to ratify the treaty. Therefore, Applegate had no food or supplies of any kind to give to the natives. Crops failed due to frost, and starvation became a real possibility. Applegate worked to fix the problem, but it was not enough. During the second winter of Paulina's residence on the reservation, the chief was anything but content. Though the treaty specified that Paulina needed to work to convince Howluck to surrender, quite the opposite was happening. Howluck secretly visited Paulina, trying to get him to leave the reservation. One event unfolded to the east in February that tipped everything in Howluck's favor. Paiutes under Smoke Creek Jim went on a series of raids in northeastern California's Surprise Valley in early February 1866. Though the Paiutes, which were reported as numbering near 200 strong, never killed any of the whites in the raids, they did steal a significant amount of livestock. The few troops stationed at Camp Bidwell, the army post at the northern end of Surprise Valley, were able to recover the stock. The editor of the Red Bluff Independent echoed the concerns of the settlers, writing that Camp Bidwell, with such a small contingent of soldiers, was vulnerable to attack. Soon, additional units from Nevada and California arrived in the valley to reinforce those at Camp Bidwell and began the hunt to punish the natives. About 9.30 in the morning on February 15th, the soldiers struck the Paiutes, who were encamped on the state line between Oregon and Nevada at Rock Canyon in Guano Valley. Some of the Paiute men fought from the bluff at the mouth of the canyon, but the 51 troops from companies D and F of the 2nd California Cavalry and the roughly 30 civilian volunteers punched through the defense with a charge, killing Smoke Creek Jim and chasing the fleeing natives up the dry, craggy canyon. The shooting continued for six hours across rugged terrain. One private was killed in the exhausting fray and in response, his fellow soldiers killed the Paiute who shot him 
and made sure to cut off his scalp. The whites gunned down women and children beside the men, later claiming it was too difficult to distinguish age or sex. By 3.30 that afternoon, 81 Paiute men, along with 15 women and children, lay dead in the dreadful slaughter. The soldiers lost one killed and seven wounded. A number of women and children sat as prisoners of the Californians as the evening closed on the bleak killing field. The next day, the troops issued a month's ration of dried beef to the 19 captives, then sent them away. Turning to the Paiute camp, the soldiers destroyed everything, including three tons of dried beef and 35 wickiups. Some Western newspapers reveled in the news of the Guano Valley Massacre. Another clean-out has been made of the Redskins South, read the Idaho World. The whites intended to be in that area, and the Indians will soon begin to understand that fact. Another editor shared his approval, calling the fight good work. The attitude reflected a belief that the natives got what they deserved, and that the citizens of Northern California were safer and better off for it. The 60 head of cattle the soldiers recovered was proof of that. While the reporters lauded the California volunteers' brutally lopsided victory, the massacre upset the tenuous peace with Paulina, plunging eastern Oregon back into its bitter war against the Paiutes. Howlick once again visited Paulina. The chief told him of the destruction of the band in Guano Valley. The secretive nature of the visits prevents an exact knowledge of what Halleck said. But whatever he did tell Paulina, his persuasions were ultimately successful. Paulina and all of his people disappeared from the reservation by April, leaving Lindsay Applegate to wonder what happened. Applegate wrote the following August, I hoped for a long time that Paulina was only absent in pursuance of a promise to use his influence to persuade Howlock and other hostile chieftains to forsake the warpath. But it seems sufficiently evident that he nor his people now harbor any feelings of amity toward the United States. The universal belief among the Klamaths and Yahuskins is that the snakes are all for war. Applegate and the remaining tribes on the reservation were so worried that the Paiutes would return to attack the agency that Applegate requested that the troops at Fort Klamath do a sweep through the region to either capture or drive away any Paiute bands in the vicinity. For a time, Huntington refused to believe that Paulina went back on his word. He hoped that the Paiutes abandoned the reservation only to return to their homeland up north, rather than to resume raids against the whites. He was wrong. Huntington's plan to achieve peace in eastern Oregon was nothing more than some worthless papers that had yet to be ratified by the Senate. Whether in exasperation or in frustrated fury, Huntington wrote, now nothing is to be done but to fight and exterminate them. Peace required the annihilation of the Paiutes, including the men, women, and children. And Oregon's next governor was happy to do just that. <laughs>